0: Well, hello, Antioch. I'm excited to be with you today as we do part two of our study in James. The study is called Faith That Works. And today we're going to be talking about seeds, root and fruit. Seeds, root and fruit. That's the title of today's message. I want to encourage you to get out your Bible, get out your journal. We're going to be going through James chapter two, the end of chapter one, and into chapter two today. I hope you had an awesome time this last week of meditating on God's Word, letting God speak deeply to us as we reflected on James 1 over the course of this week, this week upcoming. I want to encourage you to take these scriptures that we go through today and to read them during the week and let them go deep within you because God wants to speak to you. God wants to encourage you. God wants to father you in this season with wisdom for life. Chapter 2 starts out in verse, or chapter 1 comes to verse 18. It's kind of a transition point. That's where we're going to start. Chapter 1, verse 18. We're going to go into chapter 2. Verse 18, James says, He, being God, chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all He created. So right off the bat, James, the master of illustration, who's always using kind of word pictures to communicate truth, he talks about that God sent His Word, Jesus, to us. That he, Jesus would do something in our lives, would save us, would transform us, would make us new, right? That we might be a first fruits of all that God created. God is making all things new. He's starting with those who received the gospel. He's making us new, that we would be a kind of first fruits. Remember for James, all of the wisdom in the book of James flows from the fountainhead of Jesus flows from the word of truth that God sent to us to transform our lives. And here, James is going to take us backstage to show us how this transformation works. I really struggled in junior high math. It was very difficult for me. I couldn't figure out what's going on. And part of the reason I couldn't figure out what was going on was because when I would try and work the problem, i just get everything jumbled together. And in junior high math and on into high school, if you don't understand the problem that you're starting and how to work toward the solution, you can come with an answer, but it can be a crazy answer, right? And the teachers are always like, show your work, show your work, show your work. It took me three years before I actually listened to them and I got serious and I would be careful about showing my work, making it neat, lining it out. And from that moment on, I didn't struggle with math again. Once I understood how things work together, James takes us into how our faith works, how this first fruit, this new life Works. Uh, and he says this. He, he talks about uh, in verse 19, he said, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Note on those two verses, we're going to focus on those next week. Uh, we're going to go into 21 right now. It says, Therefore, get rid of all the moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which you can which can save you. So get this, one of the images that scripture uses for the word of truth, uses for Jesus, uses for God's word coming into our lives to save us is a seed, right? Jesus, the word is a seed who comes into our lives and now he's saying that we have a responsibility. God has initiated salvation. He sent Jesus. He sent forth His Word to bring us from spiritual death to spiritual life, to make us new. But now He's saying we have a part to play, that we need to humbly accept the Word planted within us, that we're going to have to let go of some things. We're going to have to let go of moral filth and evil that's so prevalent and receive and let grow within us, let take root within us, the gospel seed. So now we've seen the seed, the word of God, the gospel going forth, and we see that it's meant to take root in our lives, that we have a partnership with letting God's word take root, with letting our salvation take root in the soil of our hearts and then grow up uh, with this power to save, heal, transform, and renew our lives. So we see seeds and we see roots, and then James is going to build on that with fruit. So he's connecting an illustration from seeds to root to fruit. And he's showing us how the gospel of Jesus Christ transforms our lives. He says in verse 22, he shifts metaphors a little bit. So you want to make sure you pay attention here. He says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. Do what the word says. Anyone who listens to the word, but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and, after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. So James uses an illustration. He shifts from seeds, root, and fruit. He shifts to the idea of a mirror. And he says God's Word is like a mirror. This Word that we've received is like a mirror. And he said if you just simply hear it, be like, oh, okay, that's cool, but you don't do anything with it. You're like a person who goes to a mirror, looks at it, and sees, oh, I've got food in my teeth, but doesn't do anything about it, just walks away and forgets. Or goes to the mirror and is like, man, I look like a million bucks today, I look good, and then walks away from the mirror and forgets all that and wonders all day if they look put together. That's just dumb, right? And James is saying, when we take God's word and we just simply hear it, but we don't do anything with it, we're being like that person with the mirror that just doesn't use it for its purpose. But God's word for us is a mirror to our souls. It shows us who God sees us as. It shows us things in our lives that God wants to deal with. And it shows us the way in which God sees us so that we would live according to how God sees us. Or we would take Jesus' word and we would put it into practice. So verse 25, uh, it says, but whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. So he's gone from seeds to it taking root in our lives to it bearing fruit in our actions, in our thoughts, in our character, in our motivations, it being lived out in our everyday experience. And James is gonna describe the type of fruit that the gospel brings in our lives, that the word of the Lord brings in our lives that the healing and transforming power brings. This is the type of fruit that Jesus grows within us and that we need to let grow within us and apply ourselves to. The first thing that he says, we see in verse 26, it says, those who consider themselves religious yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. So he's saying the first area of fruit that we see when we know the gospel is at work in our lives is it changes the way that we speak. It changes the way we use our words. It makes us self-controlled with our speech. We're gonna hit on that more next week. Definitely a word for our season about the way that he speaks. But James says, hey, if the gospel doesn't impact your tongue and the way that you speak to people, right? Your faith is worthless. It's not taking root. You're kind of like that man in the mirror. Verse 27 hits on another characteristic of the fruit that the gospel brings in our lives. And he says this, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. So it says not only does the gospel bear fruit in our speech, but it bears fruit in the way that we treat people. It bears fruit in the way that we love people particularly those that are vulnerable or under-resourced in our community. Here, he highlights orphans and widows. So the fruit that Jesus wants to bring in our lives is transformed words, but he also wants to bring a transformed love that we would care for people who are vulnerable and in need. The third fruit that he highlights here at the end of verse 27, it says, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So the third fruit is not just our speech, not just who we care for, but it transforms our character. The fruit transforms who we are. And we come out of being stained and polluted by the systems and thought processes and practices of a fallen world, and we're made new in the image of Jesus. And we reflect the kingdom of God. So it's changing our speech. It's changing our love. It's changing our character. It's making us pure. That's the type of fruit that the gospel brings in our lives. So now James has shown us the math problem. Here's the seed, the word of truth, Jesus. God has sent him like a seed into our lives. We have the opportunity to humbly receive that word and let it take root. And as it takes root, it's powerful. It's not just in word only, but it's in action. And it changes us. It changes the way we talk. It changes the way we love. It changes our character, seeds, roots, and fruit. Now, James is going to go on in chapter 2 to dig in on one aspect of this in particular in a greater way. The beginning of chapter 2, I find, has so many implications for our day, our generation and what our nation is going through right now. James says at the beginning of chapter two, he says, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Now, as we read this, I want you to think about James as a father in the faith. And I want you to think about God as our heavenly father pulling us near and teaching us about the ways of the kingdom. And James is saying, look, the fruit that Jesus brings in our lives, one of the things that it eradicates, one of the things that it removes is showing favoritism to people or, or favoring one person over another, not based on their character, not based on how God sees them, but based on their external appearances. Right? He, say, he gives an example. He says, suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring. And fine clothes. And then there's a poor man in filthy old clothes, verse two that comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, Here's a good seat for you, but to the poor man you say, You stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So here James begins to attack favoritism or partiality. He begins to attack the way that believers in James' day were viewing people and treating people. That they were treating the poor uh, not according to how God saw them. They weren't treating the poor according to their character. right? They were favoring the rich. They were favoring a certain external appearance and look and size of the bank account, and they were giving them preferential treatment. And James said, this is not the way of the kingdom. This is not the way of the church. You must not show favoritism. Why? Because God doesn't look at external appearances. God looks at the heart. And here we hit on an important, uh, several important Christian doctrines that I want to make sure that you're aware of, that I want to remind myself that it build on this idea. There's a reason that favoritism and partiality are so important to, to, um, in the kingdom of not operating based on those principles. That's the way the world works. The kingdom is different. God doesn't see people according to external kind of status symbols, right? He sees their character. And in fact, God has made every person Regardless of their capacity, regardless of their class, He's made every person in His image. Every person has inherent worth and value. And when we show partiality, we show favoritism, we do a disservice to showing people the image of God. Because we say, well, actually, this one's better than that one. And God's saying, no, I've made everyone in my image. It's against the kingdom of God when we operate this way because it violates the law of love. We're called to love our neighbor as ourselves. When we show partiality or favoritism, we don't do that. It is against what heaven is like. We as the followers of Jesus are supposed to live that it might be on earth as it is heaven. And in heaven, we see that there are people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation gathered around the throne. There's no partiality there. So we're called to be a people who do not show partiality, do not show favoritism based on external appearances, based on the way people look, based on uh, how much money they make, based on their gender or their background or their ethnicity. We are to look at people in the way that God looks at them, in the way that God sees them. And so this is why this is so important. This is why these doctrines are why Followers of Jesus, why we're pro-life? Because we see the unborn as made in the image of God. We see a call to love our neighbor as ourselves. We see a future generation that God wants to work through. We see partners in the gospel, right? This is why followers of Jesus, we care about the poor and the vulnerable, as James is speaking here. This is why as followers of Jesus, we care about the way that we treat and respond to immigrants. This is why as followers of Jesus, we need to care about the racial unrest in our nation. And I know when I say that, I know that some of you are like, yes, I am all in on that point. I've been waiting for this to happen for you to go in right here. And I understand that. I know some of you are like, oh gosh, I don't know. This makes me feel uncomfortable. This makes me feel anxious. This makes me feel nervous. I don't like these terms. I don't know. And there's just tension. And I've heard from so many of you and talked to different ones of you in our church who sit on different sides of perspective on this issue. And some of you can't believe other people don't see it the way you do because you're on this side. And others of you can't believe people don't see it the way you do because you're on this side. And I want to speak to you as your pastor. I want to speak to you as a brother in Christ. I want to speak to you on behalf of the Lord. And I want to call us not to pull apart, but to come together. And I think a a healthy biblical framework for talking about the racial issues in our day is rooted right here, impartiality and favoritism that there are things that are going on and there are parts of our community who are saying that there have been systems and rules, whether knowingly or unknowingly, put in place that end up favoring one community over another, not based on their character, not based on how God sees them, but based on external appearances, based on what someone looks like, the color of their skin. And God is saying, hey, This is not to be within the church, that we're not to be a place that sees people like that. We're to be a place that's a picture of the new humanity God is building. And so I wanna encourage us to rally around that. I believe that we can all agree on what God is saying right here is that we don't want to be the type of people that show partiality or show favoritism. We all need help in this. We all need the grace of God to change us. We all need to grow, but we can agree that we don't want that. I know you. I know our church is hard for the Lord and your sincerity for Him. And I think as we begin to think about this, then it takes a little bit deeper of, okay, what are the ways within the church that we might be knowingly or unknowingly do that? What are the ways in our community that we might be unknowingly or knowingly doing that? And this is an opportunity for us to change and to look more like Jesus and to look more like the kingdom of God and to create a world where more people can flourish. And that's a big deal to God. That's something God cares about. This is not a, a kind of an issue around the periphery, right? For James and for the Lord, it's like, I planted the seed of my word, Jesus, within you. You're letting it take root, and now you're letting it bear, bear fruit. And part of the fruit that it brings is this eradication of a worldly mindset of how we do things, and we favor people based on how much money they have, what their skin color is, what their gender is, and not based on them being made in the image of God, not based on our call to love our neighbor as ourselves, not based on their character, not based on the new humanity that God is building. And Jesus is building a new kind of people who see the way he sees and care the way he cares. And that's what James is talking about. So I want to challenge us and encourage us all to come together on this. And we may have different ideas for solutions. I know that some of you are politically aligned one way or another i want to encourage us for a moment as derwin gray pastor derwin gray gray said he said the church in america is over politicized and under gospelized meaning we can get too aligned to a particular political party or way of thinking about things and we start to interpret everything through those lenses rather than interpreting it through the lens of the gospel and i want to consistently call you back to the gospel call you back to the kingdom. And we may have different solutions or different ideas about how to make a more just and whole and flourishing environment, right? Some of us may think one way, some of us may think another. Obviously, a lot that we've done is not working, so we need a lot of new ideas. And there's room for different ways of attacking the problem and creating a solution. But I want to call us all to agree on God's heart is that our community and our city would be a place free from partiality, free from favoritism, where everyone has an opportunity to flourish. In verse five, James continues to lean in. Again, he's not mad at you. This is a father speaking to you as a son or a daughter. And he says, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom that he promised those who love him? This is chapter two, verse five. But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are you not the ones? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name to whom you belong? If you really want to keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing right. That is a good and honorable and right thing. But if you show favoritism, you sin, and you are convicted by the law as a lawbreaker then he goes into verse 10, a really important concept. He says, For whoever keeps the whole law, yet stumbles on one point, is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. What's he saying? He's saying here that this is not an opportunity to pick and choose. We're not at Piccadilly. We're not at Luby's. We're not at 1050 Barbecue or whatever buffet that you think of when we start talking about picking and choosing. We're not there, right? He's saying, hey, these issues are important. Purity of speech is important. Purity of lifestyle is important. Our character is important. The way we treat people is important. And you can't rally around one and say, well, you know, I don't know about that other one, but I'm into this. He's saying, no, no, no doesn't work like that. This is not pick and choose. This is Jesus, and He is calling us to follow Him, and He's making us whole and making us people who care about all these issues, because God cares about them. In verse 12, He says, Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. There's a little comment on the way that we speak to one another. Again, we're going to put all those together next week and go through them. But you want to talk about a word for our time right there. In verse 14, he says, What good is it, brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied with action, is dead. So here he shifts from this active favoritism and partiality to a sin that's a bit more passive, right? This is a situation where he's describing someone, seeing someone in need, seeing someone saying, I'm hurting, I need help, and wishing them well, but not doing anything about it. As I read this, I thought about the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? The first two passers-by of the man who was beaten, right? They see him, but they keep on going. They might have said a prayer for him. They might have said, you know, Lord, help you, but they kept on going. And James is saying that's not the type of faith that we're called to have. We're not called to have an empty faith. We're called to have a faith that exists in in seed and root and in fruit. And he's calling us to move from passivity to activity that we're to be a people as best we can to care for those around us who are saying, I need help. Verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Well, show me your faith without deeds. I'll show you my faith by my deeds. So now get this. He's not saying that it's, you're saved by your works, right? We're saved by grace through faith. He's not saying that it's a mixture of works and faith. He's saying that's not it. He's saying It's a faith that works, that an authentic faith builds works into our lives, that there's gospel root and gospel fruit, that there's good news and good deeds that are to come out of us. And he references, uh, you foolish person. Oh, no, I'll back up. He said, but someone will say, uh, sorry, verse 19, you believe there's one God. Good, even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? There's faith and there's works. You see that his faith and his actions are working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did or was made mature by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness as he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. It's faith that works. In the same way, was not even Rahab, the prostitute, considered righteous for what she did when she gave the lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Or as the late, great Rich Mullins said, faith without works is like a song you can't sing or a screen door on a submarine. That's where he's going. Now, I want to pause there because he's about to change directions. And I want us to skip ahead. I want to press fast forward for a moment into chapter five, because in chapter five, James circles back to this theme. And I want to hit on this with you as we close, because I think that this is, I don't know, when I read it, I was almost overcome with emotion uh, about the Lord's heart for people. Chapter five, verse one, I want to encourage you to turn there on this same theme of gospel uh, fruit. I mean, gospel seed, gospel root, Gospel fruit, the way we care for people, the way we treat people, particularly those who are vulnerable. He says, now listen, you rich people. And here in America, compared to the rest of the world, we are rich. He's speaking to the rich in his day. We as a nation, we are rich in so many ways. He says, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth is rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and your silver have corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. Wow, yikes. He says, you have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, get this, look at verse 4. The wages you fade to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. As I sit in the American South and as I consider our history, it is um, deeply convicting and with great sorrow that I think about how much of our nation's history and how much of world history has been lived out with this very thing. In the American South, the phrase, the the. Laborers who mowed your field or laborers who harvested your field are crying out, their voices are crying out against you. I think this is important for us to realize and to receive God's correction and to be humbled and to repent. Not that we can stay there and feel terrible about ourselves, but so that we can be a part of something new that God wants to do. He says, You've lived long. You've lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. And so he's speaking and he's challenging us. And I don't know, friend, I don't want to stand before that kind of judgment. I know you don't want to stand before that kind of judgment. And so what I'd like to ask you to do is as we head into this week, that you would take these passages of scripture that we've read And I don't want you to do this because your pastor said this is what it means. I don't want you to do this because your church kind of does it. I want you to go to God's word and let God, your loving and good heavenly father, who wants to train you, as we learned last week, to be a king and to be a queen, who wants to place a crown of authority on your head, I want you to let him by the Holy Spirit speak to you. And I want you to let him reveal what's there and reveal his heart in His truth. So this week, as we go into our week, the reading plan of how we're going to meditate and digest and marinate on these scriptures will be on our website. It'll be on our social media. It'll be in the newsletter. But I want to encourage all of us to go to God with this word and let that sweet conviction of the Holy Spirit come that we might be healed and made new and lead forward toward a better future and a brighter tomorrow. I love you, church. And I'm praying for you.